Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, censoring the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how you doing this week, man? Great. Yeah, I'm glad to be back. Yeah, as am I. There's a, there's a lot to discuss this week, to put it lightly. So uh, why don't we just go ahead and get right into it if you don't have any personal matters we should probably nope, discuss first. that's it. Excellent, man. So um, obviously the big story this week... The letter from the CES commissioner, Elder Paul V. Johnson, I believe is his name. This whole thing was a mess. Like, in case you missed it, Elder Paul V. Johnson, the commissioner of the church education system, released a letter on Wednesday to clarify some changes to the honor code. Basically, it amounted to explicitly saying that same-sex romantic behavior is still against the honor code because it can't lead to eternal marriage, even though that language has been removed has been removed from the honor code itself. Social media was understandably ablaze, the pain of having their emotions toyed with, the reneging, the reinstitution of homophobia in the name of Christ was a lot to bear for a lot of people, especially LGBTQ students at BYU. It was like there was just a lot to process with that letter. So Derek, I don't even know where to begin with addressing this letter or addressing what's been happening in Utah this week or at BYU in particular. Where would you like to start? Well, the first thing I want to say is that every queer response to this is valid. Like there's going to be some people, there's going to be a wide variety of reactions and a wide variety of ways of processing it. And mine is only one possible way. I like to lead with things like hope and encouragement, but that shouldn't be weaponized against other people's pain and suffering to to do in 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 a way that, really minimizes what they're going through but i want to be here to say look i've got optimism in even the worst situations and i really believe paul's promise in romans 8 that god works all things eventually for the good and now some other people say well derek you're just that's wrong you know other queer people can can have their but they have the right to say that does that make sense yeah so far we good and all these people that are really mad and angry that's great too like Mm -hmm. you you need to be mad and angry certainly um yeah, let me talk um, part of the hope that I get is that when you read this, I'm going to call it the CES letter. All right, the CES <laughs> the letter. The CES letter. Okay. So when you read this, the other CES letter. So that when you read this, I actually find hope that that there it's it's ironic because I'm reading against the grain, but the hope that I find in this letter is that Elder Johnson basically admits that he has no good arguments for his position. Okay, can you talk a little bit more about that? You know, he doesn't even try to, to persuade or explain or defend. He just gives up. He It's very clear that he's backed into a corner. He has no good arguments other than the appeal to authority. And I'm like, oh. Can you read that section real quick, by yeah, the way, for reference? Yeah, let me read reference? this section. Same-sex romantic behavior cannot lead to eternal marriage and is therefore not compatible with the principles included in the honor code. Okay. That's the famous second to last paragraph in the CES letter. Famous or, or infamous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's just, that is self-contradictory. It it doesn't apply. It, there's just so many ways that we don't even know what he's trying to say because it's inconsistent with so many other things. There's no way to implement this. And I, I think the Honor Code office people actually have a very good case for saying, this 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 actually doesn't retract anything. It doesn't mm. it doesn't do what he was trying to do. Right, right. It really doesn't give the the actual moral or philosophical foundation for retracting what the honor code office said they were doing two weeks ago. Do we have time to talk about some of those inconsistencies in more detail? Yeah, we do. Excellent. Um, okay. But 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 the first we'll we'll get to that. We will get it. Okay. Yeah, we'll as long there. as we get there, and we'll get there. But I wanted to just go to, he signed his name here, which I think is very interesting, because this this letter really fails to convince. Like, when we get to these problems, you'll see why it's a failure to convince. Mm-hmm. But church leaders, really, the only power they have is the power to persuade. This is very clear in DNC section 121 about unrighteous dominion. All you can do is persuade. You can't just sign your name to something and say, this is the way it is. If you didn't persuade, you didn't do your job, and the Spirit has no way of implementing this or applying it to the the diverse body of Christ that's trying to find this out together, being 
being led by revelation as a whole. There's there's just no way that, that makes sense. A couple of verses popped into my head when I when I when I read this. One is the the famous verse at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus in Matthew five through seven preaches this very powerful sermon and ends. Here's what it ends saying. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these things, the people were astonished at his doctrine. And that's just a word that means teaching, his teaching. Mm -hmm. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Because when he spoke, people knew what he was saying was true. They were mm -hmm. convicted in the heart. They had this, this masterful, powerful impression that what he is saying is true. He didn't need uh, to appeal to some other authority. He spoke and it was self persuading right mm. it was just by its own nature what he said was so powerfully true that's the opposite of this right right Derek's holding He's up the trying, letter I'm holding up this letter mm -hmm. I should stop calling it the CES letter I just want to call it that because <laughs> it's but Ooh, Derek made a face <laughs> <laughs> but but really this this doesn't succeed it does just does not succeed in bringing more light and truth. It doesn't right. succeed in bringing people together. It doesn't succeed in testifying of Christ. It doesn't actually solve the problem. It doesn't even answer the question of, like, on the ground, will these behaviors be construed as a violation? Mm -hmm. And what will the punishment for them be? It doesn't say that. It just basically says we've got these ideals and same-gender behavior doesn't match the ideals and goals of this. I'm like, okay, you can say that. But for the queer kid that just came out last week, what does that mean for them? I don't think this really succeeds in actually changing how the honor code would be enforced. So we don't think that this uh, last paragraph there, that last little sentence there, is an indication that people will still be punished as they would have been punished before the honor code change. That depends on... I think there's, there's evidence that there's a tension between the CES people... And the BYU honor code people. I'm glad you said that. Because I think the honor code people are trying to do the best they can to save lives, save careers, save the dignity within the structures they have. Right. They're wanting, from what I can tell, I'm not on the ground there, but from what I can tell, they're trying to do the right thing. Mm. And if they it's have the honor code office, the honor code office. Yes. Um, and I think they have enough of a case, even with this letter, to continue to fight for the dignity of LGBT students on campus. I hope that's what they do. It's one of these things where they got something from above them, but I think they have a case to say, well, that's not actually good enough mm. to to tell us what to do because there's just so many ways that this can't actually be literally implemented. Right. It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out, that tension. Yeah, let me get into two more of these verses that I, three of them I thought of. One is Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 14. So you've got the... The Passover narrative where the firstborn of Egypt is, is slaughtered, and that's actually kind of a problematic thing anyway. But God has the 10th plague, the, the slaughter of the firstborn of all the Egyptians, and the Pharaoh's like, oh, no, this is too bad. I'm going to let you go. Pharaoh lets them go. They get out into the wilderness, and Pharaoh's like, oh, just kidding. I'm going to get you back. And in, in, that happens in Exodus 14. Pharaoh says to his people, like, why did we let them go? And I think this is a very similar thing, where two weeks ago, we had even just, we didn't have full liberation, right? We just had a step out the door. Right. Step out the closet door towards liberation. Mm -hmm. And someone said, oops, nope, we're taking that back. Or they tried to take it back. Right. And that really is an evil that's that's on the level of what Pharaoh did I think in in a poetic sense not in not literally right um so there's that there's also I thought of the parable of the good samaritan and a lot of good people in the church try to say well who are you in the parable of the good samaritan and we need to be like the samaritan and not like the priest and levite we need to help the person that's that's bruised and battered and and so on and a lot of good people want to put themselves in that position, but what they really should do is say, put themselves and say, you know what? Sometimes people in the church act not like the priest and Levite, but they act like the robbers who stripped, beat, stripped and beat and um, and left half dead the man on the road. And I think a lot of people don't realize that it's not just the job of people to fix up the broken 
and, and tend to their wounds, but to not be the one that makes the wound to begin with. Mm. And that's something that people miss, I think, in this conversation. All right. And then another verse that came to my mind is the one where David, now, normally I like David, but he's got some flaws. Yep. As all, all prophets do. And David decided to send Uriah out into the heat of the battle and then withdraw from him. And here's what it says. And he, meaning David, he wrote in the letter saying, Set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. Second Samuel eleven fifteen. In many ways, that's what we've done to our LGBT friends at BYU. We set them out here in a very vulnerable spot. Many of them came out. Yeah. And then we withdrew from them. Mm-hmm. And left them now still in this vulnerable spot. Mm. I'm like, we've got to think about all these things. Mm. Uh, another very important question is to ask, how does this text function, this letter? Um, it's, it serves to single out LGBTs. It reinforces straight supremacy. That needs to be named. And it gives excuses rather than persuades. Mm. That's important to name. Another thing that's important to name is that the CES, uh, um, the church, we, a lot of people, especially in this idea of protest, are we protesting BYU? Are we protesting the church? Are we protesting each of those things, entities like the church or the CES department or BYU itself or the honor code office, as Blair Osler says, those aren't monolithic. Each one of them has internal diversity of perspective and, and we need to name that. So we can't just portray BYU as this evil thing. You know, there's there's good people there trying to do things within the system. However, BYU yeah. is more or less functioning like a plantation overseer, not necessarily the owner, but they're kind of p- functioning as the overseer. Yeah, that that I guess that's a fair way of putting it. But still, even within BYU, there's we can't just yeah. But I is get, there, like, this is just to say, is there going to be a problem, or why? would it be a problem for the students themselves to simply fight back against the institution that's oppressing them? No, yeah, you can. You can. Yes, absolutely. You can protest BYU. Are you going to address a little bit then just what function protest is going to play in terms of how the students interact with BYU and how they deal with CES and how they deal with the church? I imagine that the honor code people are actually welcoming the protests because it's making their job easier if they want to do the right thing. Okay. It gives them a way of saying, "Look, it it magnifies, and uh, and puts more visibility on the on the situation." Now, I don't know. I'm not a, an activist, and I'm not on on the ground there as to what exactly type of protest or activism would be most beneficial. Mm. And then another verse that I thought about is, "And ye shall know them by the, their fruits," because people say, "Well, I know Elder Johnson, and he's a good guy." I'm like, uh, "Yeah, what does that have to do with anything?" Yeah, you can be a great guy. And still go along with great evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fruits of this letter is not at all in the spirit of Christ. Mm. And I want to get back to this idea of hope and encouragement because what I want to ground this in, and here's where it comes in as a theologian. Like I have to come up with something interesting to say. Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, and what I want to really do is ground this conversation in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ which people say, well, what does that have to do with anything? And I think it has everything to do because when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, everything we're about ties back to that event. Like that's what our whole faith is really centered around is the resurrection, that the powers of the the Roman crucifixion are not final, but that can be overturned. If that can be overturned, anything in this world can be overturned. Anything. Mm -hmm. Death can be overturned. Homophobia can be overturned. Racism can be overturned. A 200-year tradition in the church can be overturned like anything can be overturned when you realize how radical the resurrection is. It blurs the boundaries between even life and death, like one of the most solid dichotomies or binaries there is gets transgressed by the active power of the resurrection. And I want to bring this in because, A, it's also unnatural. Like, ooh, the homos are unnatural. Resurrection is unnatural, too. Mm. And it's also a surprise. Like, we believe in the God who surprises us. We believe in the God who raises people from the dead. And also, of course, resurrection is a coming out experience. You are coming Mm -hmm. out into a new kind of life. 
Because Jesus wasn't raised to die again. He was raised into a new kind of life that will never go back to where it was. I am on trial for my hope in the resurrection. Mm. That's an echo of what Paul said. He says, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm on trial for my hope in the resurrection. I think that's what we queer people should be saying, is like grounding our activism and our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then people will know, look, that's real. These are our fellow Christians. We cannot be doing this to them. It's not like they hate the church and they want to destroy it. Well, maybe some some of the some do, but but I maybe. don't. <laughs> and I think grounding this in the hope of the resurrection can really change the conversation because then you don't talk about oh, can this be fixed or can can orientation be fixed? Can it be changed? Like what's like what what causes it? Like all of those questions are irrelevant in the light of the resurrection. Hmm. So that's what I want to say about that. And another thing to, to ask is, I can simplify this whole conversation for everyone. You only have one question to ask. It is, are LGBTs fully human or not? Mm. And every other question you answer will flow out of your answer to that question. Because if you say, yes, we are fully human, then you have no basis for denying us a full human life, the full, the full range of human expression and love, the full participation in the church, the full participation in secular and civic stuff like marriage. But on the other hand, if you say no to that question, that no, LGBTs are not fully human, there's no limit to the evil you can do to us. Mm. Because once you say, well, you're not, you're, you, you know, you're not all the way up here, you can start denying us our rights and even denying us our lives as the, as the Nazis did. You know, mm -hmm. they, they were very anti-gay. Mm -hmm. And they, um, because they didn't believe that we had the same rights and dignity of everyone else. And so all you have to do is answer this one question. So the question about, well, is, is Paul, Elder Paul Johnson homophobic or not? It's irrelevant, really. What, what really is, is how does this function? This functions to deny us our full humanity. Mm. That's it. And once you've taken that step, you can take any further steps you want in that direction, including shocking us. Until we're straight, which doesn't work, but they tried at BYU in the 70s. That history has to be acknowledged whenever you have this conversation. Right. Um, so, so so, give me some of your reactions. I've been talking for a while. What do you think of, <laughs> of all these things so far? You said a lot, Derek. Which piece do you want me to react to? I don't know, but I just want to give you a, <laughs> I want to give you a chance to say something. No, like I appreciate it. Um, you know... And I wanted to, I wanted to give you that time, Derek, because I knew that you were going to have. Oh, I'm still not done. But <laughs> I know you're not done, and you know we don't have to. Well, here's the thing. All the the only thing I couldn't help but you know feel and notice throughout all this, like I did definitely, I thought of some of these scriptural examples that you brought up, but the primary thing I thought about was that this was simultaneously a slap to the face. And an insult to our intelligence. It's, yeah. it's a slap in the face because people who felt comfortable enough to be more of their authentic selves have had that permission taken away. And it's been an insult to our intelligence because there wasn't a logic to the change. They, they, they mm -hmm. cited something from the family proclamation that wasn't even a real condemnation of same-sex relationships to say that, we can't engage in same-sex relationships. Then they said that 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 because same-sex same-sex romantic behavior can't lead to eternal marriage, it's it's not compatible with the principles included in the yeah. honor code. Like, do you know how many other romantic acts or situations don't lead to eternal marriage that aren't against the honor code? Is that is that really the best reason? The, the, the best reason you can give to play with the emotions of LGBTQs and deny them full authentic expression in the name of Christ? It, it's, it's illogical, it's pathetic, it's cruel, and it's damning. CES needs to do much better before they lose control of their students. Uh, I, I really like what Malcolm Gladwell talks says about legitimacy in, uh, in David and Goliath. And he says that legitimacy requires three things. The first is responsiveness people need to feel like they have a voice that that if they speak up they'll be heard and this reneging says we don't hear you or value your voice the the second thing is transparency the, the rules have to be predictable you have to know yeah. what the consequences of your actions are and there has to be a a general expectation that the rules tomorrow are going to be the same as the rules today 
CES fails again there as, yeah. as students and professors have been calling and emailing the honor code office to double check and triple check that the honor code does in fact say what they think it means now that the change means what they think it means now and that and then they think they're affirmed only to be unaffirmed mere days later after double and triple checking the the last and most damning of the three things is fairness they they can't treat any one group different from another Obviously, no one heterosexual on BYU's campus is currently dealing with this kind of disrespect. But in, in this particular context, no one else who can't experience an eternal marriage, whether mm-hmm. they can be, no, no one else who can't experience an eternal marriage, whether they be someone celibate or a widowed individual, they will not be told that they can't engage in romantic activity because right. it was never about being able to have an eternal marriage. It's all about being gay. BYU, CES, and the church itself, they're losing legitimacy over this whole thing. And when legitimacy is lost, revolution is inevitable. I have some, some points about yeah, okay. some more points about getting into like some of these inconsistencies and why this actually doesn't say anything. It doesn't doesn't say anything really. Um, anything useful or anything that can be implemented. And I think it has to do with um uh well, number one, um, gay cuddling or, or holding hands or kissing actually doesn't preclude or prevent an eternal marriage because you can uh, – have you heard of the concept of lesbians until graduation? No. Oh, well, there's, there's, a, there's this sort of – it's a little bit of a stereotype, but there's this idea that college can be a time for experimentation, especially on women's campuses – and there may be um, people and uh, women having relationships of some sort with women while they're in college, but then they graduate and then they end up marrying a man or something like that. Mm. But but you, there's nothing stopping someone from holding hands with a dude and then going on to marry a woman later. Like I'm not saying that that's what gay people should do, but technically there is no act that you can do with someone of the same gender that will prevent you from from marrying someone of the other gender mm-hmm. later on. It just doesn't. The The behaviors of, of kissing, cuddling, and whatever, none of them actually prevent an eternal marriage. Okay. They don't. Even marrying a man doesn't prevent you from marrying a woman later. Mm. And if you're a woman marrying another woman, you know. So it, it logically doesn't actually, he, like it literally isn't true what he's saying. There's nothing about the behaviors that are fully consistent with the law of chastity. We're not even debating God's laws here. There's a de- that's another debate. Mm-hmm. But they'll even within the way the law of chastity is written, uh, which prohibits gay sex and gay marriage, there's no other prohibition there. And I think that's really hypocritical, and um, it just just makes no sense. So the law of chastity, just to clarify, the law of chastity as written by the church or the law of chastity as in the scriptures? Oh uh, well, either one. I mean, there's a difference there too. Yeah, I mean, to say, there's Leo, a difference there. Yeah, but we—that's another conversation. Even within the way the law of chastity is currently understood by the church, uh-huh. we should—if we respect LGBTs, we should at least give them everything that they're entitled to under that definition. And refusing to do that, as Elder Johnson tries to do, is just just bitter and spiteful, and doesn't make any sense, and does not convey Christ to anyone straight or gay in the church. Mm-hmm. So this, this idea of if something, this, okay. One of the weirdest things about this logic is I had as a theologian and, a, and someone who has studied Christianity uh, of many denominations, this logic is very interesting because something is prohibited based on what it doesn't lead to. I have never seen that before. Can I've you say seen that again. Something here that is gay dating is prohibited based on what it doesn't lead to okay. eternal marriage. And that is that is so interesting because I've seen things prohibited based on what it would lead to, right? Mm-hmm. You're taking a step in the wrong direction. Like it could lead to this, so we're gonna we're gonna put a fence around that and make sure you don't start on that path. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of examples in Christian ethics of stuff being prohibited because of what it leads to. I, I can't think of something where something is prohibited based on what it doesn't lead to. And which means that this 
almost anything. For example, if you and I play tennis together, that's not going to lead to an eternal marriage. Right. Therefore, is playing tennis with your friend prohibited? It just makes no logical sense. This is there's this is not an actionable letter. There's no way to implement it. There's no way to actually take this and consistently implement it. Mm. Um, here's another reason why uh, there's so many. Uh, I'm not the first person to say this. A number of point people have pointed this out. But if you have a widow, someone sealed to her deceased husband, uh, sealed her husband, and then her husband dies, and she starts to date, well, that dating cannot lead to an eternal marriage mm. because women at this time cannot be sealed to more than one man. There's no way that she could be sealed to the person that she's dating. Would that dating be prohibited against the honor code? I mean, unless you're going to be consistent, you're just singling out the LGBTs, and that's pure homophobia. Right. Right. You're not even, you're not even, this principle that he's talking about, he's betraying the fact that he's only implementing this principle for the LGBTs and not for this widow or, or you know, it just makes no sense. Here's another thing. I'm curious about this. What about black couples before 1978? Because, Black couples could not be sealed. Black couples could not be, uh, of course, that's wrong, right? I just right. want to name that. Is right. the, but I'm wondering, would a black couple on the campus of BYU under this type of honor code be prohibited from holding hands? And I'm like, I don't actually don't know what it was like for black people if there were any on campus before 1978. But, but that's another example. I, I just don't think that they would... I don't know. I mean, there's just so many ways that this makes no sense. Mm. Number five, there's some actual practical flaws with, with what would happen if you try to prohibit gay dating, holding hands, kissing, and stuff like that, is that it would go underground, and it would it would still happen, but it just would not be in public anymore. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of problems with that. One is... It's easier for things to become sexual very quickly if it's hidden. If if the two, whether it's gay or straight people, if you have a gay or straight couple going off and engaging in kissing and, and hugging away from the eyes of the public, of course there's going to be much more of a, of a, there's no accountability on where that's going to go. And it if they really want to prevent gay sex, they should they should <laughs> ironically um, keep these other things out in the open mm. so that these couples are now publicly accountable and everyone knows that they're dating and everyone is going to support them with love and compassion and encouragement to keep the law of chastity okay. versus if no one knows that they're gay and no one knows that they're dating. I think that's actually healthier. There's another, th uh, and a corollary to that is an, an issue of uh, abuse. For example, suppose I'm not a BYU student, but I want to um, mistreat, I want to date and mistreat a gay BYU student. Under this type of honor code, all of our stuff is going to be hidden. Like, no one's going to know. It's easier for me to manipulate and abuse this person saying, I will report you to the honor code office if you don't do what I say. And I can actually do bad things. I'm, I'm, I'm saying this hypothetically, by the way. I would never do anything like this. But you see what I'm saying is that keeping this stuff hidden, keeping people uh, vulnerable to... A punishment can really lead to their lives being held hostage by people who cannot be trusted. And mm -hmm. I think just taking off and having amnesty for for all of these behaviors that don't violate the law of chastity, everyone's healthier that way because then no one will be put in that position where they can be manipulated. Mm. Um, the other flaw with this is it says same-sex Romantic behavior cannot lead to an eternal marriage and is therefore not compatible with the principles included in the honor code. Okay. Notice when they talk about the principles, they're really talking about their ideals and their visions, which of course are, are, are thoroughly soaked in straight supremacy. But the problem is that that doesn't actually talk about how the implementation, like on the ground, they're talking about the principles, not the implementation. Okay. And it leaves room for the implementation to go some other way. But getting back to this, where it says same-sex romantic behavior cannot lead to eternal marriage, neither does celibacy. Like, if you go to BYU and you're a gay dude and you say, look, I'm going to commit to celibacy, under this reasoning, that should be against the honor code, too. Hmm. Because whether you date or whether you don't date, 
whether you date or whether you commit to a life of not dating anyone of any gender, both of those are equally not leading to an eternal marriage and should be equally condemned by the honor code. Mm. Like, there's no way that this can be consistently implemented. So I think it should just be um, sort of shelved because it has opted out of any actual breakthrough that can mm. be implemented. Right. Okay, here's another point. Let's see. Oh, they're using... He's using dif- discrimination to defend his discrimination because the the greater thing that people assume for the sake of argument is that same-gender marriages cannot lead to an eternal marriage. And the reason that is the case is because the people said it doesn't, right? The people who lead this church at this time say, well, there's no possibility for same-gender ceilings, and that's an act of discrimination. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, look, we're going to use this discrimination on temple marriage as a reason to discriminate on um, gay dating at BYU. And just to clarify, this is them deferring to the, this is the letter deferring to the family proclamation to justify this further homophobia. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, although the, the, the family proclamation doesn't actually say that there can never be same gender ceilings. It doesn't say that. It, it is the only thing we have that does exclusively say that marriage, eternal marriage, is strictly between a man and a woman. It is the only document we have that it says It says that. the powers of procreation should only be used between a man and a woman, but it doesn't say, it does say marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, but it doesn't say only. And I don't think, I'd have to look at the proclamation again to, to see if it actually talks about ceilings or if it talks just about marriage in general. But anyway, um. This idea that only, uh, but what the, the proclamation, what I said mm-hmm. was the proclamation doesn't say that same gender ceilings will never happen. It doesn't make a con- It does not say that, right? It does not say that this can never change. It says, here's where we are right now in 1995, mm-hmm. but it does not make a prophecy that says this will never change. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that's important to say because it can change and, and there's nothing in the proclamation that can prohibit a change from coming later in terms of same gender ceilings. But but my point is right now you've got same gender ceilings n- discriminated, not allowed in the temple. Mm-hmm. And they're using that discrimination as their only basis for discrimination against da- gay dating. Whereas my solution would be to say, hey, if you just let same gender ceilings happen, then same sex romantic behavior can lead to an eternal marriage. Mm-hmm. And that fixes it for everyone. Right. Like, then you can have your little con- principle consistent and say, well, um, I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm still with you. Yeah. Um, this also conflicts with Oaks's statement because even President Oaks said at the last April's uh, retraction of the November 2015 policy, he said, from now on, Gay immorality and straight immorality will be treated the same. And if you're going to do that, then there is nothing in the law of chastity that prevents an unmarried straight couple from holding hands and kissing and holding themselves out to the world as a couple. Mm -hmm. Therefore, there's nothing that prohibits a gay couple from doing the same thing. Mm. Um, It's just a double standard. If, If holding hands and kissing were wrong for an unmarried straight couple as a violation of the cha- law of chastity, that only then would it be make, make sense to say that it uh, it's a violation for gay couples. Mm. So that's important to name. Another important to name thing is what people are missing here is they're trying to make the a lot. So most of this argument ends up being around sex. They say, well, here's what our position is based on the law of chastity, right? And the law of chastity says no sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. But what's interesting is we're not even talking about sex here. We're talking about the basic human interactions like holding hands or hugging or embracing or like putting your arm around someone else. Like I think a lot of I can't speak for all gay people, but I I think that many people can live without sex. But there's very, very few people who can live without basic human touch and affection. Hmm. And when you try to prohibit that you're just really exposing the cruelty that's that's underlying what you're doing. I think that for many 
for many gay uh, people, being able to to have healthy, affectionate touch with someone of the same gender meets a lot of their needs. That's true for me. It meets the majority of the needs that they need in terms of intimacy with other men and connection with other men, and and it definitely helps people thrive and be happy and stay in the church and stay a, a functioning adult. Mm. Um, now, not not everyone needs physical touch, but when we look at biblical examples of this, I think about David and Jonathan, and they kissed each other because of their love for each I'm not saying that they were homos, but they had a particular friendship and actually military and political alliance and a covenant that bonded them together. And I'm like, they had a physical component to their friendship. And same thing with Jesus and the beloved disciple who leaned his head on Jesus's chest. I mean, would that violate the honor code? Like that, that is absolutely pure and legitimate. I don't think that that, I think that the other problem with this, it doesn't actually define what the word romantic is. Like maybe, maybe that wasn't romantic. What, what David and Jonathan did or what Jesus and the beloved disciple did. But it doesn't define which behaviors are romantic and which ones aren't and which ones are just a healthy expression of of love between same gender people, whether they're gay or not. I mean, straight people have physical affection with people of the same gender all the time. Would that stuff be prohibited? And that's the other logic is under this under this thing, straight people are not safe either, Mm -hmm. because if if you have your arm around your bro and you're both straight, someone could misconstrue that. And make your life miserable. And you're not even gay. Right. Like the fact that anyone, and, here, and part of this is no one can actually prove their orientation. Like you could not, you could not make, how could I prove that I'm gay? That's something that, there's no proof. You have to just believe me. Mm-hmm. There's, there's literally no proof that I'm gay other than I tell you. And it's the same thing with people who are straight. There's no way that you can prove what your orientation is. Um, you can prove what your behavior is, right? But you can't prove what your internal state is, who you're attracted to, stuff like that. And so what that means is every straight person is liable to be falsely accused. You could be falsely accused of being gay. You could be falsely accused of engaging in same-sex romantic behavior and have no way of defending yourself because you can't say, well, I'm not really gay. Because there's a lot of closeted gay kids. At, right. at, at, and I'm not saying we should fix this because... We need to make things work for straight people. Obviously, we should center the queer people first, but what I'm saying is everyone suffers under this. Mm. Everyone should consider themselves a potential victim of, of this oppressive interpretation of the honor code. And that's where I'm going to stop for right now. All right. Solid, Derek. I really like that. Yeah. Let me say just a few more things. Oh, no. Sorry. But... <laughs> I want to say that that I love the church. I'm totally on the side of the church. I'm totally on the side of Jesus. This is Jesus's church. Now, just because there are going to be members and leaders who disagree with each other, that doesn't mean that we we hate the church. That means we love the church and we're trying to uh, to to live into our birthright as as a people who are led by revelation and led by these breakthroughs. So, I think it's because that I love the church that I can name the effect I, I can't really judge Elder Johnson's heart, but I can judge the effects of this letter as hypocritical, unfair, arbitrary, cruel, discriminatory, spiteful, and sloppy. It just does not do any favors for anyone in the church. Mm. And um and I want to wrap up with with hope because in the end, I don't want to minimize anyone's pain, but what I look at this I read this letter, and if he thinks it did something, I'm just as gay as before I read it. Like, this does not succeed in making me straight. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I win. There's nothing he can do to turn me straight. So, he didn't win. I mean, I'm still me. I'm still glad to be gay. Like, yes, there's major problems with this. But he did not get into the core of my soul and make me feel bad about myself. Which is, if I turned straight, I would feel bad about myself. But I think there's an, there's an aspect to homophobia is like water. In that if you're in a boat and the water stays outside of the boat, you can rise above it. It's only when the water gets in the boat that you sink. And I have a gift of being from all of you know, my experience and my privilege to be able to not let homophobia get inside me. 
and not be discouraged by this letter. And other people may be discouraged, and that's valid. But I want to say that there's an option for, for people as well. So maybe I should end there. <laughs> Sounds good, Derek. Again, thanks for sharing that. As you spoke, I thought of that uh, James Baldwin quote. Uh, you know, when you talked about criticizing criticizing the church, James Baldwin once said something to the effect of, it's because I love America more than any other country in the world. It's for that reason yeah. that I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. So, like, I, I definitely vibe with that aspect of being critical of the church in that the criticism only means that you love the church and that you love Christ. And anyone who says different really does not know your heart and perhaps is not seeking the welfare of Zion the way that you mm-hmm. are. All right. So if that's all we're going to, if that's all we'd like to say about the uh, commissioner's CES letter, we can go ahead and move on to the Come Follow Me unless there's other news. Nope, that's it. All right. Well, before we move on to the Come Follow Me, let us just remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, and arts and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So for this week's Come Follow Me, we are in Jacob chapter one through four. So there is, there's quite a bit in this chapter. I really like the uh, conversations on both race and also feminism that we can Mm -hmm. have uh, in this particular chapter. There's probably some queer theology in here as well, but Mm -hmm. I just, I latched on to both the racial elements and the feminist elements. And I do want to take a moment to talk about uh, those. Derek, would you care to give us any context to these uh, verses or sorry, to these chapters before we dive into the content? Yeah. I want to begin with these closing words from Jacob chapter seven, where he says, um, this is Jacob 7, verse 26, wherefore I conclude this record, declaring that I have written according to the best of my knowledge by saying that the time has passed away with us and also our lives passed away like as it were unto a dream. We being a lonesome and solemn people, wanderers, cast out from Jerusalem, born in tribulation, in a wilderness, and hated of our brethren, which caused wars and contentions, wherefore we did mourn out our days. I think that really frames like where Jacob's coming from. He was bo- he wasn't born in Jerusalem, but he was born in the wilderness and he um still had all of this baggage of his people having to leave Jerusalem and he names that. And I think this kind of characterizes so much of else of what he does because he really wants to do right by his people and set things up for for good. He really wants, he, there's a pacifistic element to this because he knows the devastation of wars and contentions mm-hmm. and that's what he's trying to deal with. And I think that really sets up what he's doing, especially in his sermon in Jacob 2 and 3. Mm, definitely. That's probably where I'm going to spend the majority of my time is actually in Jacob 2 and 3 and also talking a little bit about how Jacob's experiences having you know, grown up in the wilderness, having been taught of Nephi and having gone through many of the same traumatic experiences as Nephi, how all of that is going to color how he, you know, how he views certain things, particularly with regard to uh, the women um, in his life, as well as the Lamanites in general and his own people in regard to their their color, because we're going to come across some more racialized language in here. Before we get to that particular talk, though, I just wanted to uh, talk about President Nelson's talk from, I think it was October. Do you remember this talk back in October? I think it was titled uh, Spiritual Treasures or Spiritual Gifts, something like that. But um, he, he he talked about abuse of priesthood power in the, mm. in the winning oh, session. okay. You remember that? Is this, I think I... Yeah, I, I th- yes, I know the one you're talking about. Okay, he's, he's the this is the one where he tells men to 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 do right by their wives and stuff. Well, he, well, that's what Jacob too says. But keep in mind, this particular session of conference, he was speaking just to the women. The men were not present, and that's kind of what I want to. Oh, yeah, I'm vaguely remembering this. Okay, but like I just remember social media. I didn't. I actually did watch women's session this year, and uh, or you know that particular year, and I remember saying to myself, I wish the men were here to hear this. You know what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. he directly called out abuse of priesthood power in any capacity. Uh, or Yeah, abuse. yeah. now I remember, yeah. Okay, that was, yeah. That was good. So, um, again, that was my main criticism of, uh, 
of that particular talk. I actually really enjoyed it. But my main criticism of it was the fact that uh, men were not present to hear it. Mm-hmm. And then here I am reading Jacob 2, and I'm saying to myself, oh, this is why I wanted men to be present. Because Jacob mm-hmm. opens, uh, he opens this chapter. He states that he is going, like he gathers everybody. He gathers all of his people to talk to them. And then he says, okay, I'm going to speak just to the men, but the women and the children are there as well. So he acknowledges off the rip that what he has to say initially is not for the women's ears, but he still persists to speak to the men with the women present. And that's uh, pretty powerful, and it becomes pretty clear when he makes clear what he has to talk to the men about. Right. So um, he, he had, he, again, he says he's got many things to say to the men, but he expresses the fact that he's, he's grieved that he would have to say any of these things in front of their wives and their children. He didn't want to, he didn't want to hurt them at all. And it's not explicitly stated why he does this instead of speaking to the men in private, but I can only assume that is for the same reason I wish that the men were present for that talk that President Nelson gave in the women's session, and that's the reason of accountability. You know, If the men are present, then the women can hold, if like both the men and right. the women are present, then the men can be held accountable for the things that are being said to them because the women are present. Right. And likewise, if the men had be, been present for that conversation that President Nelson was having with the women, then they could likewise have been held accountable. So, um, you know, there's that whole thing. I really like, uh, let's see. Well, actually, let me actually highlight something that Dr. Fatima says in Book of Mormon for the, le- for the least of these. Uh, she says that the women have to sit through painful words, but Jacob is wielding his power to bring them some authority and justice. She says, uh, Jacob is willing to shame the men in front of the women and children in action that levels the power structure. She then goes on. There is a subtext to his call for repentance and one in which people with more social power are being held accountable to those with less, close quote. But she also is going to go ahead and point out that women being hurt or being exposed to additional trauma for the sake of holding men accountable is something that should be familiar to a lot of us, especially in considering uh, victims of sexual assault. The pursuit of justice for sexual assault in particular is often going to open new wounds. But for the sake of pursuing justice, those new wounds need to be opened. And that can also further Mm -hmm. let us know why a lot of women may not be inclined to seek justice because being exposed to that trauma again and then exposing themselves to new trauma is quite a daunting task. So I think Jacob is giving us insight into ways we can be more empathetic uh, to women who have to deal with abusive power structures in in, a patriarchal society. So one more more other uh, nod to the women that Jacob gives is when he holds the men in particular responsible for their own sexual immorality, and then he refuses to blame or implicate the women in the sin of their husbands. Now at church, we have this, you know, I don't know if it's appropriate to call it a rape culture in the church or whatever, but what it is, is there's an expe- there's an expectation that we put, a greater expectation that we put on women for sexual purity, that there's a tendency to also blame them for sexual immorality in consensual or non-consensual relationships. Mm -hmm. Like, I know for a fact that young women are getting lessons on sexual purity and on chastity that the young men are not getting. I know that there are women who are being punished more harshly for sexual immorality while the men that have participated Mm -hmm. with them in that same consensual immorality are also not being punished as harsh harshly you know you'll often see situations where women are told not to partake of the sacrament for things that men are still being allowed to partake of the sacrament for like same exact sexual immorality but two different punishments Mm -hmm. being uh, meted out what jacob is giving us here is not engaging in that again that patriarchal structure that says the sexual responsibility or sorry the sexual immorality is uh, the sole responsibility or the primary responsibility of the woman. He doesn't engage in that at all, and he puts the blame squarely where it belongs, which is on Mm -hmm. the men in in the end of uh, Jacob chapter 2. 
And Christ does that too, of course, with mm. with you know, in, the the solution is if if you're walk by an attractive woman and have a problem, pluck your eye out. Yeah, don't tell her to cover up more. You need to just pluck your eye out. I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I saw this Twitter thread a little while ago that just explained that one of my favorite stories of Jesus is when he tells people, when he tells men that if they see a hot woman and they can't control themselves, that they need to pluck their eye out rather than telling the woman to cover up. I just really like that Jacob is reinforcing that by placing the responsibility of a man's sexual immorality squarely on his own shoulders. Like that's just a really profound thing we gain from Jacob and something that needs to be lifted up as we continue to teach chastity to uh, men and women. And uh, moving on to uh, Jacob chapter 3. Jacob chapter 3 is interesting because not too long ago we were talking about Jacob chapter 2 and uh, I quoted Jacob chapter 3.8 in our analysis of 2 Nephi 2.5 or 2 Nephi chapter 5 verse 21 in particular. And I wanted to attempt to explain the language that Nephi used, particularly uh, his uh, use of the use of colors to describe people. Just to briefly recap, Jacob states that a fear of the Lamanite's skin being whiter than that of the Nephites when they are brought together before the throne of God. Now, obviously, this is going to beg the question of why the color of their skin would matter, especially before the throne of God, where judgment is to be taken place. And we know that God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't care what people look like. And, you know, the scriptures are replete with examples of... God, in essence, declaring that he's not a respecter of persons, that our appearance doesn't matter, but it is, you know, our hearts that matter. Um, Now, one interpretation that we've gone over is that it actually doesn't matter and that this passage is not to be taken literally. But, you know, even though our sacred text discusses equality and the whole second half of uh, Second Nephi 26 talks a lot about equality and focuses entirely on, on how inclusive God is, you know, I think another reading may be warranted for Jacob to be legitimately concerned with the color of skin at judgment doesn't make any sense unless Jacob isn't talking about literal skin color, which is a reading that we discussed, you know, several weeks ago when we talked about second Nephi mm-hmm. chapter, you know, chapter five or Jacob might be kind of racist. I don't know. Like there's something that is worth exploring there. Again, this is somebody who was an Ephi student, so it stands to reason that some of those sensibilities about skin color may have been passed to Jacob as well. And again, I think there's space for that first interpretation, but I do think it's worth reading this potential uh, prejudice into Jacob's character as a way of understanding uh, the text as we are being presented with it. So I'm not... I'm not sure how much I agree with this particular reading, but again, I do think it's exploring. So there's an incident that I experienced this week, and Derek, you are well aware of it. It actually goes back to this whole incident of the uh, CES commissioner's letter, and that was when a mutual acquaintance of ours felt it appropriate to discuss the character of Elder Paul Johnson and what I can only assume is an attempt to explain away the homophobia in this letter. Um, something that too often happens in our society is we don't allow space for two things to be true at the same time. If we call someone a racist or a homophobe or some other kind of bigot, they tend to hear us calling them a bad person. Uh, I understand that interpretation, but it's not necessarily true. As a black person, I can tell you that I know plenty of racists that are good people. And Derek, you probably know lots of homophobes that are good people. You know, I can also tell you that the mere fact that I have sisters or the mere fact that I have dated women, that hasn't made me incapable of thinking misogynistic thoughts or subscribing in any way to the patriarchy. I'll say again that two things can be true. Good people, even prophets, can have bigoted ideas and we've seen this both in the ancient church and we see this in the latter-day church peter being racist on more than one occasion paul being sexist brigham young george q cannon bruce r mcconkie marky peterson and the like all of them had said things that we could all agree are bigoted but that doesn't exclude them from being the lord's anointed and that didn't preclude them that didn't cause us to remove them from their place as the lord's anointed and that brings me back to jacob 
I want to give Jacob credit where it's due, first off, for naming the prejudice of the Nephites. In verse 5, he actually says that the Nephites hate the Lamanites because of the cursing which hath come upon their skins. He then follows that up by saying that the Lamanites are more righteous and that right and he ties that righteousness to how they treat their women and children even going so far as to say that the lord will extend them mercy because of that one thing that that we kind of brush past that whole thing but this is this idea that loving their wives and their children is powerful enough to keep them from being destroyed i feel like that's grossly understated and think that's something worth naming that how we treat women mm-hmm. and children in our societies is powerful enough to the point of brushing off a certain destruction and powerful enough to for the Lord to show mercy to us. The Nephites, Jacob points out, are not at that point. They're not even keeping that commandment to have just one wife and no concubines and avoid committing whoredoms and preserve and, you know, just otherwise be respectful to their wives and to their women. Now, when we get to verse eight, uh, that verse we quoted before in this next context, it's sudden, it's suddenly problematic if we want to put this reading on it. Jacob has acknowledged that his fair-skinned brethren are less righteous than the Lamanites, but he still ties levels of righteousness to skin color. Though he's primarily concerned with their righteousness at the throne of God, he views skin color as a sign of that righteousness, hence the wording here. Basically, he's displaying prejudice while he's condemning it, much in the same way that racists will claim not to have a racist bone in their body. Much like those racists, Jacob could probably be unable to see how the trauma he's experienced at the hands of his eldest brothers or how his learning under Nephi has affected his thinking. But that doesn't mean he doesn't love his people or that he's incapable of delivering the word of God. Jacob is clearly capable of condemning prejudice and putting his people on equal footing with the Lamanites in the sight of God. Like he says that much. Um, you know, he even asks at the end of verse seven, are you not much better than, are you not better than they or much better than they because of these sins that they're committing? But his ability to do that is limited by his own bias. And that has to be, that has to be acknowledged. And that's something that all the Lord's anointed deal with. And we have to be able to hold space for that. The ability to hold prejudice or hold bigoted ideas, racism, homophobia, or any other ism or phobia but still be able to be the Lord's anointed. Again, we've seen that in the ancient church. We've seen that with ancient prophets. We see that today. We've seen the Lord's anointed able to experience these negative emotions or hold these negative worldviews, but that because it's the best the Lord has to deal with, he still keeps them in their place, and we have to be able to hold space for anybody, but especially our leaders to, you know, have these less than perfect ideologies while leading us in mm-hmm. the ways of the Lord. Well, I have a follow-up question for you. Yeah. This, this text here, for, well, there's there's a lot of things in here, but for example, in verse 9 of chapter 3, um, a commandment I give unto you, which is the word of God, that ye revile no more against them because of the darkness of their skins. Texts like these, do you think that they succeed, or that they can, that we can use them as a successful anti-racist text? I think we can, but again, that is, it's still limited because Jacob is the one who's saying it and Jacob's right. experience as a Nephite, Jacob's, ex- Jacob's experience as someone who has been taught by someone who views or who may view the Lamanites as less than because of the color of their skin, that our, our ability to use this as an anti-racist text is still somewhat limited by Jacob's imperfection as someone who may or may not be slightly bigoted so the short answer is yes but we have but there's nuance there okay i have some other questions and i don't know if we need to talk about the answers to them but it's something for people to think about one is what would the lamanite what would the lamanites say about nephite racism Mm. i think that's something to think about two what would the women in both tribes say because it could be that uh, we have the men's perspective and we have the Nephites perspective, right? Yeah. And, and we don't know whether the women would be much like what, what were their thoughts? Did they really want to see their sons go off and kill each other? Maybe not. I don't know, but we don't have their voices. Right. Um, right. And I think that's interesting. Um, we do have the, the, the record of the voice of Samuel of Lamanite, which I think is good to name that. But uh, even still Christ had to tell them to include yep, that record. Yep. You gotta. Yep. And one of these things that it says, I loved here, about the, when it talks about the Lamanites, okay, in verse seven of chapter three, he says, "And behold, their husbands love their wives, and their wives love their husbands, and their husbands and their wives love their children." And I think that's interesting. 
My one question that I don't think anyone has asked is how did the Lamanites treat their LGBTQ minorities? And how did the Nephites treat their LGBTQ minorities or the the equivalent in their society? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there would be a difference because if the Lamanites had this overflowing of love for their kids, I imagine they loved their queer kids maybe even more than the Nephites loved their queer kids. Probably. Probably. And we don't know, but I think that's something interesting to think about. I think we can infer it, though, simply because so much of homophobia is rooted in misogyny. Right. And that seems to be a problem that is, at this point anyway, exclusively mm-hmm. the Nephites. And and I think it's very important that when, it's, when it talks about women and children, those were... Um, relatively less powerful people more right. marginalized more more vulnerable right and how they how you take care of your vulnerable people is what he says what jacob says is the thing that the lamanites should be praised for yeah so i think there's something to think about that definitely that we don't always have to adopt the nephite prejudice on race or gender or um or orientation if they had one that's uh, that we don't know of that's one of the hardest things about this text this time around is having to wrestle with those things. That's actually all I have to share with regard to Jacob chapter two and three. There, There is something actually else in Jacob chapter two that's worth mentioning. There's a scripture mastery in there that talks about seeking for riches. Um, there is something to be said about. Okay, so just something that uh, I feel is worth mentioning here is uh, what's around this scripture mastery. Before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. Jacob is condemning the seeking of riches for the sake of, you know, wealth itself. He actually, in these verses around it, goes on to talk about why we should seek for riches or what we need to do with those riches once we get them. He says, after ye have obtained a hope in Christ, ye shall obtain riches if ye seek them, and ye will seek them for the intent to do good to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry and to liberate the captive and administer relief to the sick and the afflicted. Something that is too often lost in the conversation about, you know, seeking better things for ourselves and seeking wealth or seeking riches is what we're supposed to do with that wealth. One of my favorite things about the law of consecration is it guarantees that anybody who obtains riches, you know, uses them for uses them for good of other people. Mm-hmm. Like they consecrate not just their wealth, but also their time and their talents to the building up of the kingdom of God here on the earth. This is the whole purpose of our riches. Like if God gives it to you or if through God you are able to obtain it and everybody, every single one of us should be viewing it that way, then through God we should also be able to bless the lives of others. That is the whole point of us learning to receive blessings. Mm-hmm. I just really like how um, that that specification is laid out by Jacob to make sure that when we receive wealth, when we obtain wealth, that we care for the poor and make sure they're looked after. Yeah, that that does make a lot of sense um, because, as Dr. Fatima says, the, the the approach to riches and go- gathering up gold and silver is directly connected to like how you treat your women and children. Oh, okay. Yeah, like that's it's really all wrapped in in a in a similar thing. Yeah. Um, they're all marginalized groups at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, I just want to name something. I don't want to talk about it very much, but at some point I want to, some other day, I want to circle back to this question of what do we do and how do we process the questions like why does God allow racism to exist in the church? Um, if our church is true, why have we had a problem with, you know, and what do we do with the sort of collateral damage of, of what happens when all these people are suffering uh, after decades and decades and centuries of a, of a policy that's oppressive, um, whether it's racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, any of these, like, what do we do with that? Um, and how do we make sense of those things, uh, mm. given that we are God's church on the earth, and given that we do have anti-racist and racist texts mixed together in the Book of Mormon, like... <laughs> What does it what does it mean to to wrestle with with those things? And, and we'll come back to that at some point. I just want to point out uh, a name that that Jacob talks here about polygamy. And okay. we would have to have a longer conversation about that at some point. Uh, we should come back to that another another week. I want to look at Jacob four verses 16 and 17. All right. 
But behold, according to the scriptures, this stone shall become the great and the last and the only sure foundation upon which the Jews can build. And now, my beloved, how is it possible that these, after having rejected the sure foundation, can ever build upon it, that it may become the head of their corner? Now, this is a very interesting... Um, there also is a, uh, um, a somewhat anti-Jewish bias in the Book of Mormon as well, which we'll have to explore some at some point. But, um, uh, but, but what I want to go with is this is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 22. It's referencing, uh, which in Hebrew is, Evan ma'asu habonim The stone which the builders rejected has become... The cornerstone. Um, and to me, that that's really a big treasure. And there's just layers of meaning to that. It could center on David being, you know, the last of the sons of Jesse, and he wasn't even out there. Uh, and and people were surprised that he would be the king when mm-hmm. when he was like the the loser of the bunch. Right. And God chose the ones that was rejected. Um, and same thing with with Israel as a nation. Um, was surrounded by people and and rejected by other empires that abused them and mistreated them and conquered them but God chose them to be and then this this centers back with Christ of course Christ was rejected Christ was was crucified by the um by the law enforcement I just want to name that he mm-hmm. was he was uh like like Jim Cohn says lynched by the law law enforcement of the time mm-hmm. um and that connection needs to be but after that rejection, he was raised from the dead, and that really is God setting up as the centerpiece of, of a brilliant building, the temple, something that was rejected by the experts who should have known what the temple was supposed to be. They, the, the experts had a, the builders had a plan for the temple, and they threw out this stone and said, that doesn't fit with our plan. And a lot of people in the church do that to queer people, say, look, mm. you don't fit. You don't fit our plan. We've got this plan. It all makes sense to us. It's all organized, and we're going to reject you out of our plan completely. Um, wh- which really, I just hate to talk about this letter again, but this act, this letter doesn't actually help gay people what we should do. Like, if there's actual revelation and breakthrough, you would have a voice from heaven saying, look, I've got you. I know you're gay, and here's what you should do. But this doesn't do that, okay? Right. Um, so what this letter really does is says you have no place at BYU. We don't know what to do with you. We don't have that information. We admit that we don't even have good arguments as to what you should do, just what not to do. Don't date, don't get married, and don't have gay sex. But they don't say what to do, which leads them to think there's no real good place for, for my people in the church. And this type of rejection will be overturned by God the same way that the crucifixion was overturned by the resurrection. And I am very confident that the hope of resurrection will get my people through all of these things if we tap into it. All right. There's nothing else to be said there, so we'll go ahead and uh, wrap up the show real quick. So Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50-plus years to situate it in LDS history and more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has a discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Okay, Derek, by way of housekeeping, where can people find us? You can find us um, at BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. What's our handle? BTBLDS. Yep, that's right. That's right. Yes. All right. Well, thank you guys again for tuning in. We will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye.